Eugene Reith. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. Um, season two, maybe, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Do we do seasons? Um, I, I, don't, I don't know if we do seasons, but we're like, we're in a new stage of history. We are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we've, we, we took a little break after the um, Kentucky Route Zero series, um, had a little rest for the summer, and we're back. Um, we are back reading Anarchist Cybernetics by Thomas Swan. Uh, which was released, I think, in late 2020. Um, so pretty recent for us. Um, this is a cool book. Uh, it's pretty damn resonant with the, the stuff on the show that we've discussed before. Um, it, it almost, you know, you know that thing where you're, you're reading something and it's like, oh, was, was this written for me, you know? And uh, there's some of those vibes here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a very kind of uh, similar experience to what I had with uh, People's Republic of Walmart, where it's like, yeah, oh, yeah, like, we, we've been reading similar things. We've been we've been studying similar stuff. We've had similar experiences like this is this is speaking, speaking to us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Right. Um, and the because like the, the core of the book is um, the overlap between um, anarchist politics and cybernetics, uh, especially like the Berean uh, British cybernetics uh, variant that we got through Pickering, um, and the the crossover point being the concern with self organization, um, and so that's kind of the large topic of the show. So um, extremely resonant. Um, I guess for uh, maybe listeners who are new, or uh, I guess maybe people who've only listened to a couple of the, the episodes before. Um, the book has a lot of the kind of like the cybernetics 101 stuff that we're not really going to dwell on here. Uh, we're, we would instead point you to a couple of back episodes um, and the the ongoing reading group, uh, Reading Brain of the Firm by Stafford Beer uh, that we're putting out. So the particular episodes I would recommend are episodes 18 and 19, where we read The Cybernetic Brain by Andrew Pickering. Then episode 31, uh, Designing Freedom by Stafford Beer. And then episode 38, where we went over the viable system model in particular. Um, if, if you're brand new and not familiar with any of that sort of stuff, it might be worth pausing this one. Go check out a couple of those ones first and then come back here. So then you'll have all the context. Uh, yes. And if you are interested in delving deeper, we also, of course, have uh, been recently uploading a full reading group series on uh, Beer's uh, Brain of the Firm. Uh, which is a larger text uh, that goes more in depth. Uh, so yeah, if, if you if you're interested in that, uh, we uh, well, I guess almost most, mostly I uh, read out almost the entirety of the book in the <laughs> in the podcast. So uh, uh, it's it's very like listenable, even if you are not uh, reading along. I think um, and. Uh, yeah, uh, that's that's a place to go deeper uh, for sure. Uh, but uh, certainly, the cybernetic brain, uh, designing freedom, and the VSM are enormous touch points for this book. Um, directly referenced, very clearly, uh, and brain of the firm comes up as well, uh, but uh, to a lesser extent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Yeah, so I guess we could crack into it. Um, uh, chapter one kicks us off um, with a wonderful title, uh, 2011, The Year Everything, and then that's crossed out. Uh, nothing changed, 
since the year, nothing changed. Um, we get our, our kind of wind in with the uh, you know 2007 2008 financial crash, then the 2011 revolts and a kind of resurgent left. And you have the Occupy protests, the Arab Spring, and a general kind of air in these movements of um, uh, going beyond representative democracy, like a, a dissatisfaction with representative democracy, a dissatisfaction with capitalism, and a desire for participatory democracy and autonomy. Um, in, in different contexts, this takes a kind of flavor of wanting to either restore proper democracy or create it in the first place, depending on context and place. Um, but these, as we know right now, these these just didn't work. <laughs> they, uh, these these movements failed um, and backslid into either right populism or kind of left electoralism, or or nothing, where people just packed up and went home and never thought about it again. Um, or or ended up uh, in the Emancipation Network, right? Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, very <laughs> rare outcome. You got you got to roll perfect twenties to get that one. <laughs> we are all we are all a, of a lefty vintage that was. Uh, you know, the right age to be profoundly affected by that episode. Absolutely. Uh, that is, um, yeah. that is very, I, <laughs> that I, is very I guess, true. I guess Derek more than anyone else, but, uh, certainly all of us. I mean, Tom's pretty old, you know? Um, well, no, but I mean, uh, uh, Derek was, uh, you know, in Egypt after the Arab Spring. So oh, that's true. He, yes, he was, he was really deep in the aftermath. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, you you can either fail rightward, or you can get into the Emancipation Network, or pack up and go home. Those are the those are the outcomes from this. <laughs> or or you know, join the Democrats or the Labor or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of trajectories that that, that come out of it. Yeah. Mm. I think that that's that's the the left electoralism, yeah. Um, but you know, this is this is formative stuff for for everything now, basically. Um, yeah, uh, but uh, you know. Uh, ancient history to many on the left these days. Uh, something that yeah, is kids. out of living memory. Um, the, the TikTok leftists, you know? Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Yeah, just just want to acknowledge that, that, like, that is not lived history for many people on the left these days. God, I'm starting to feel old. Um, <laughs> well, facts are facts, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but then uh, the author then frames the aim of the book as uh, wanting to help understand exactly how these experiments in participatory democracy operated and to identify the key functions of these forms of self-organization in the hope that they can be learned from in ways that might inform future movements' attempts to make participatory and more resilient the promise of real democracy. So we're going we're gonna to be dealing with the failure of Occupy here. Um, the main sort of feature that the author is going to focus in on is... Um, like the anarchistic kind of vibes of Occupy, right? The, 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 the whole like no formal hierarchy thing, the democratic forms that the camps uh, took, uh, the general assemblies and spokes councils and so on. Um, he'll then like acknowledge the limits, like that, that, that like the, the fail rightward, the electoral turn and all that kind of stuff was a reaction to the, the very real failures of these, um, of these movements, right? That like, um, it is laudable that they were experiments in participatory democracy, but it also has to be acknowledged that they kind of failed to go anywhere and failed to resist the the sort of backlash against them and the, the, the crackdown against them. Yeah, I would say it's, it's less the case that people uh, went to Occupy, saw it fail, and then became radicalized to the right and more the case that Occupy did not provide a convincing case that 
the left had an alternative to the Democrats or to the Republicans. Um, and because we have to remember that Occupy happened during the Obama presidency and the Tea Party movement was already well underway uh, at the time that Occupy was happening. Like, I wouldn't say it was well underway, but it was getting going, right? Like, the the um, questioning of Obama's birth certificates and the sort of apocalyptic militancy among the NRA crowd and all that kind of stuff, like, that was already, like, happening. It's just that Occupy didn't really provide an alternative that was convincing to anti-statists uh, on the right as an avenue forward. And so it bolstered the right on on that level. Yeah, so like I, I, that's that's an important corrective there because like there's there's the right right. And then I think when I wrote down fail rightward in the the notes, I think I was more thinking of the left center right spectrum of the left um, where the 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 electoral turn, is not really so much an electoral turn. It's that like electoralism was the default, and then there was maybe a hint of a promising alternative, and then they went, oh shrug, that didn't work out. Yeah, uh, and back to electoralism. Like an important uh, part of the Occupy phenomenon was that it was clearly and openly hostile to the Democrats, um, in a very meaningful way. Like not not in the sense that like, oh, it got so much done against the Democrats, but in the sense that like people openly and deeply felt a mistrust of the Democrats and were trying to build something outside of that structure, which was very novel um, for its moment. Yeah. Um, and I, I think there was like somewhat a similar thing going on in the UK, but maybe not as pronounced with labor like it was. Um, you know, it was, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, that, that the Occupy movement was operating under the auspices of labor by any means. Uh, but they also didn't maybe define themselves as starkly against labor. Uh, so yeah. Whereas in the U S that was like really clear that like we, there was a really like deep influence of anarchist theory and sort of like, uh, like we're against partisan politics. We're against like parliamentarianism. We want direct democracy. Like a lot of of anarchist ideas that had bubbled up out of the '90s were on display in in Occupy. Yeah, and the kind of thing that the author wants to do here is to save some of that from failure. Right, that like, if we learn from experience and we learn from science, specifically cybernetics and the science of organization, there wouldn't be a need to fail rightward after this thing falls apart. Um, maybe a future movement could actually effectively challenge the ruling class in the state. Um, and so we're gonna we're gonna take all that good self-organizing stuff from anarchist politics and fuse it to cybernetics and in particular the viable system model. Um, to get, you know, get, get effective self-organization going. Um, yeah, it's, it's a good pitch. Um, this is the kind of pitch I'm very vulnerable to. Yeah, I, I will, uh, you know, uh, like many people 
of my age, I am very skeptical of the Occupy experience because, uh, you know, so many great hopes were dashed um, and uh, so much despair and cynicism came out of the wake of the Occupy movement uh, and it, it's being crushed by states around the world. Um, but uh, this is certainly an argument I am willing to uh, entertain uh, because I, I, I don't uh, like, I recognize that the best history isn't always written by the people who directly went through the experience and it's possible to revise our considerations of these experiences. Right. Um, uh, so I, I'm willing to entertain uh, these kinds of arguments for sure. Uh, so I, I was, I was pretty open-minded coming into this. Um, yeah. I think for me, it's like, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty critical. Yeah. I mean, a similar thing is like being pretty down about the Occupy stuff in particular, but it, it's an optimism for the elements that the author identifies as being desirable about Occupy. Um, not necessarily a, a desire to rehabilitate Occupy itself. Cause like, I don't know. I think that accounts of Occupy can often be way too generous about its radicalism and stuff. And like, also not nearly sufficiently critical of its, like, of the reasons why it failed. Now, the author will be critical of those reasons. Um, like, get into an account of, like, yeah, why why this kind of thing, um, yeah, why, why it didn't, didn't kind of stick around. But uh, I, I, I think the, the whole Occupy kind of moment was much more incoherent than it even seemed, and it seemed pretty incoherent. Like, when you have, like you know, tenants and landlords and gold bugs and Alex Jones and a drum circle and students and, you know, office workers that just got laid off and stuff all kind of milling around doing this, this thing. And like the, 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 what, the phrase that like you, you often get from activists and anarchists is the whole like uh, carnival sort of feel to the kind of street protests and stuff. And I, I think that kind of carnival atmosphere can paper over a lot of stuff and a lot of fractures and things, and that, like, the, you know, it, there, there didn't seem to actually be, a, like, a strong core to it. Like, it was a kind of, um, it's what the EndNotes crowd would call a fictive unity of the 99%, which kind of erases, erases a lot of difference, because, I mean, like, just, like, you know, I'm in the 99%, and so is my landlord, you know? Hmm. <laughs> you know, how's, how's, how's collaborating there going to work out, you know? Um the 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 worker or like whoever work somebody working in a service sector is the 99% but also so is the boss that like fucking sexually assaults them at work you know and so also is the HR person that tries to cover that up you know there's a lot of fractures and like weird shit going on among in the working class that was kind of erased by the framing of occupy and i'm pr i'm pretty down on occupy itself but again the elements of it that were desirable, like the participatory self-organizing stuff, that's worth salvaging and looking closer at, which this book will do. Yeah, and I think uh, there's a couple points that I would make there. One, that this kind of uh, fictive unity um, is pretty characteristic of the initial phase of revolutions. Um, a kind of unity of the people is not really that uncommon uh, to see. Uh, I mean, you certainly see that in the French Revolution. You certainly see that in the Russian Revolution uh, and, and numerous others, right? Uh, and it's, 
I, I, I want to emphasize that like the Occupy movement and the Arab Spring, like that period of time was a real international revolutionary wave. Um, it, it, it just was. It was in the air. Revolution was in the air. It was also tremendously ineffective and, and failed. Like, I mean, 1848 failed miserably as well, right? And that was also a very clear international wave of revolutionary activity. Um, and, uh, you know, it's... Yeah, so I guess I would just say I, I, I don't dismiss Occupy because of that initial incoherence. Um, and the other thing there is that it's important to appreciate the background that Occupy came out of where, yes, there was this this kind of um, Gen X anarchism that had been handed down to us or uh, listening to Chomsky. I guess that's less of an influence because, you know, he he was already well past his anarchism by by the time I was growing up. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, it was, it was in the air. It was what you were being taught in school. Like if you went to university, um, and, uh, particularly if you were in the core demographic of Occupy, which was, uh, um, sort of either like basically, university educated young people in the coastal metropolises um that was that was the core so people who you would expect to vote democrat right uh people who would go on to become democratic voters uh in it given the sort of regular state of affairs um they were unquestionably the core of occupy uh but what was unusual was that uh, it actually did attract a certain uh, demographic outside of that group. Well, it was it was it was strange in two ways. One was that these people were not immediately integrated into the system and were actually, you know, throwing a fuss, right? Uh, because they were disappointed with Obama um, and and what he had promised versus what he had done. Uh, and then two. Uh, that it wasn't exclusively the sort of democratic core uh, demographic that was out there. It was also um, it was also uh, maybe like more hard up proletarians. It was, um, as you said, like the sort of Alex Jones crowd. Uh, there was there was a bit more of sort of like buy in from people who would be more like Republican leaning. Uh, and, you know, there was there was a fair amount of dissatisfaction with Obama from people who would typically vote Republican, but had decided to vote Obama because they they felt like he would he would be an agent of change. And they were disappointed with that in a similar way that many Democrats were. Um so just that 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 opening up of the political spectrum to some degree uh, was was quite unusual. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I think that I wouldn't. And, 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 and then the, the last thing uh, to mention there is that uh, 
although these anarchist sort of organizational ideas and kind of a skepticism of the man was pervasive at that time and was certainly heightened by the Iraq war and the, uh, you know, perceived or real betrayals of the Obama administration. Like, you know, when it was like mask off for Obama and just that was so traumatic for many people. Uh, like all of that kind of like loosened things up. But like in terms of sort of speaking of anarchism as an influence in terms of anti-capitalism uh, or like, I don't know, even beyond anti-capitalism, communism, right? Like uh, that was like something that people were just starting to become aware of or think about because we had grown up in the end of history and there just wasn't that discussion for most people. Although some of us were aware of the discussion, it was like, you know, most people at the time, maybe they were skeptical of the state, maybe they were skeptical of the Democrats, but they weren't like, and you know, the, the 2008 crisis had happened. So people had like the potential for critique of capitalism and were maybe looking into it, but they weren't actually like educated in these questions in the way that young activists are today. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So if we had another Occupy, you know, if we had another Occupy right now, we'd be in a much better position. Yeah, that's that's really important. Um clarification there right that like the the, the the end of history and then the 2008 crisis coming as such a shock and like nobody was accustomed to thinking in these terms at that point like like since 2008 marx is back on the table but it just wasn't the case back then and by the time the conversation was getting started going it was kind of falling apart but the, the times are different now again from then Yes, yes, yes. So yeah, I just want to emphasize, yes, anarchist was a, anarchism was a big influence, but not in a communist direction. Like not in actually a let's break with capitalism direction, more in the sense of like the organizational form. That was what was in people's heads. I think that's that's what accounts for some of the um some of my disappointment in like the the content of it like it's like I think I'm definitely fond of the forms. But the content, is, I think I've referred to it before as like anarcho-liberalism or whatever, where, you know, it kind of, it's adbusters kind of stuff, you know, or like... Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You know. Because adbusters, adbusters was the organization that got it going. Yeah, exactly right. They they called for the first protest in New York. Yeah. Um, and then, I guess I guess for me, it's like, it's, it's like I, 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 I mean, yeah, it's, it's more of a, it's, it's not so much a disappointment in the forms, it's a disappointment in the content, but then... You know, it's 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 foolish to be disappointed in history to some, to some degree as well. It is it is what it is. Um, Inevitable, but uh, uh, you kind of wish you could avoid it, right? Yeah, yeah true. <laughs> um, I don't know the, the way all this stuff dissolved into kind of you know reformist kind of stuff, or um, or that weird kind of like I don't know like national anarchism that comes out of it, where you have like the people, the Volk almost as a as a sort of central concern. <laughs> it's like, oh gosh, I don't know, that was kind of sketchy when that all kind of, you know, to see Occupy folks go in this kind of like, um, the 99% morphs into the the people, you know, big T, big P, which morphs into the uh, the German rendering of the same, <laughs> of the same fucking phrase, you know? Um, this is sketchy kind of shit kind of comes out of there, uh, comes out of that inco incoherence as well. I think there were contradictory movements there because yeah. there it was it was uh, it was often con 
like at the time I rec I I looked at it as another 1848 and I think that analysis still has some weight behind it right um uh because it did have this springtime of the people's um dimension to it uh which is you know often the the way that 1848 is referred to because you have this sort of last hurrah of um of uh socialist or it's the last hurrah of revolutionary liberalism and the and and its connection in with nationalism um and i felt like it was kind of similar in occupy where for the first time in like forever people seriously entertained the notion of an internationalist politics because they saw an international revolutionary wave happening. But at the same time, each national grouping of protest was very much framing it in terms of, yeah, the Volk or the people, uh, the people united will never be defeated uh, in 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 their own country. So, you know, it's, it's very much like in the manifesto where like, you know, Marx talks about how the proletariat of each nation must, must first deal with their national bourgeoisie. Like it was it was a national horizon for the most part and often went into national actually like quite strongly went into national directions. But it also opened up this internationalist perspective that like before that, like internationalism was like beyond a joke. Like it was like, because we had gone through the Balkans crisis and we'd seen the disintegration of the USSR and all of this kind of stuff. It it was, it was very much in the era that like nationalism was a real political force and internationalism was a fantasy. Um, and Occupy did at least shake that up a little bit, even though the end result was a strength in nationalism. I think you're quite right about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's an important balance, though. Um, but all of that is the framing here for wanting to recover some of this and to not fail next time. I guess that's the, the main thing that the author is trying to get at. Moving on to chapter two, a radical left organization and networks of communication. Um, starts to get into the kind of the core kind of thesis here that like... Um, He's going to be riffing a lot on, um, you know, the title of Norbert Wiener's first book, Control and Communication um, in the Animal and the Machine. So the two the two concerns here are control and communication. In fact, the, the book is kind of structured that way. There's two chapters on control, two on communication, and then the, the final chapter. Um, the, the important note here for people who haven't been following us all this time is that control in this sense is regulation, not domination. It's control in the sense of what a thermostat does. It controls the temperature. It doesn't dominate temperature. It, um, it regulates it. And specifically for anarchists, it's about self-organization and self-regulation. Um, you know, organizing, self-organizing for freedom and all that kind of stuff and being against hierarchical domination. Um, so there's pages and pages of this kind of stuff that, that ties together these two, these two science things. Um, there is, I don't know, there's some questionable historiography here around the comparison between, like, historical anarchism versus uh, historical Marxism, <laughs> which is a bit, it's kind of sketchy. It's pretty, pretty dubious. It, it, um, it all reads as kind of a uh, partisan potted history of anarchism uh, 
versus Marxism that is actually quite wrong about a number of historical facts. Um, uh, and it's it's like I don't really blame Swan, the author, for including this because it's it, it, it it's a kind of common sense um, and it it reads back into the 19th century a lot of stuff that is more characteristic of the 20th century um and and so like marx catches shit here for stuff that's basically lenin and kautsky instead you know it's like and yeah and lasalle uh lasalle yeah exactly it, it's lasalle that he's actually taking aim at not marx but marx is the one who's on the page yeah there's like some ways in which so you know it's the standard um marxists are for the state anarchists are against the state um uh marxists are for mass political parties uh, anarchists are against parliamentary politics uh, a, uh, in in every form. Um, now, like, yeah, this 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 really doesn't hold up to historical scrutiny. There are some ways in which Marx can certainly be criticized on these grounds, and I think on a lot of these questions, Marx was not super clear. But there's a difference between being unsure, ambiguous, and changeable versus being um, the straw man that anarchists make him out to be uh, in this kind of potted history. Um, and also, it, it, it is far too generous to the anarchists in terms of the historical record as well. <laughs> That's the thing, right? Like, and that's something that I and I, 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 d I don't really pin this on 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 the author in particular. I think this is something I've always had a problem with in anarchism, and I used to be an anarchist. Like, my introduction to left politics was through this kind of channel, and actually during and around the Occupy sort of times. I've always thought anarchists tend to be far too generous to themselves in their history, <laughs> and. I, I think there's there's actually a virtue in the fact that the Marxists have developed a kind of circular firing squad dynamic where we are constantly bitching at each other about all our failures and our, our missteps. I think the anarchists could use a bit more circular firing squad in that way and a bit more kind of self-critique. Self <laughs> yeah, it's strange because the sort of history you see here isn't really, like, it's certainly not unique to anarchists. Um, by any means, right? It's it's kind of a Whig history uh, of a sort. Yeah, that's what it is. Um, there you go. But it, uh, like, you certainly see this kind of history in, like, trot sects, right? Like, on the Marxist side. They're, like, if you join a trot sect, you will be given history books that are quite honestly uh, false in many ways and are contradicted by better history that has been done outside of that uh that uh, uh tradition um not necessarily by marxists but just by like you know your average historian <laughs> uh so i think that um this is a problem on the left in general i think it's more prevalent in some places than others and i would say it's certainly prevalent uh among anarchists uh, so I think what I would recommend is that 
before reading this chapter, I would suggest that uh, the listeners go and check out the um, episodes of Revolutions podcast that Mike Duncan did on the early stages of um, uh, socialism, uh, which covers the Marx-Bakunin debates and uh, the sort of falling out between the Marxists and the anarchists around the First International and you'll get a much more even-handed uh, description of that those conflicts than you would from uh, a partisan potted history. Uh, I'm not saying he's impartial, but he's certainly referring to better historical evidence. Uh, and uh, and yeah, it, it, like those are really really good episodes. Uh, so I would I would absolutely encourage anyone to go check them out. But uh, especially if you're not super familiar with the subject matter uh i would go i would go listen to those and that's at the start of the series on the russian revolution i still need to catch up on that stuff um but yeah it's uh it's about it's about two or three episodes that he does so it's 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 a, it's, it's it's a fair bit of listening but uh it's all really good and uh it, it clarifies a lot of things um uh so if, you know for instance uh you know uh, he uh, Swan makes the false claim in this book that uh, uh, the reason the anarchists fell out with the Marxists was because of the question of political parties. Well, it's really not that simple because at the time in the mid 19th century, when these um, when anarchists and Marxists were fighting in the first international, um, the concept of a political party was not the kind of political party you see in the 20th century. It was actually something a lot closer to Occupy. Um, and so to say that they that the central point of contention between them or a central point of contention for them was basically whether they believed in like a social democratic style party or not is just it's it, it's 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 simply wrong. It's just wrong. Uh, like, is that is that kind of basically smuggling stuff from, like, the Kautsky era back into the middle of the previous century? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And a lot of the criticisms that you see about Marx in this book are actually very much applicable to, uh, like, post-Kautsky social democracy or, yeah, like, you know, after LaSalle's party merges with the other left groups uh, that were more Marxist um, – uh, in Germany and you get the mass party forming and, and sort of like the modern idea of what a political party is coming together, um, then a lot of this, this stuff holds. It holds against the Leninists. It holds against the Social Democrats. But Marx was not either of those things. So, you know, it's just about... I didn't live to see any of that shit. Go down. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's just about historical accuracy. And um, again, I'm not... Like, I don't think this is primarily a book of revolutionary history or leftist history, uh, although it is that. Um, and I, I, I'm not holding this against Swan that deeply because, again, this is like this is a this is a this is a story I've heard a thousand times uh, reading anarchist stuff. So it's it's not unusual. It's just not really that good. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think the. The last thing I want to do before, uh, before moving on to the next part, uh, just while we're on the historiography stuff, and like when I said that the that I I find that 
the anarchist milieu tends to be a bit more ge- too generous to itself. I was kind of thinking of stuff like, um, you know, Bakunin kind of getting off the hook for, you know, this weird hidden elite conspiracy kind of stuff. And, you know, like there's uh, there's a framing here where I, th- I think more contemporary anarchism, uh, like from the 90s onwards, has this kind of like participatory democratic kind of distributed consensus kind of stuff going on. But that's not really true of historical anarchism. Historically, anarchism was mostly terrorism and kind of elite conspiracy, <laughs> frankly, and not that much of a commitment to democracy, democratic participation or anything like that. So it was many things, but it certainly wasn't always this kind of idea of participatory democratic forms. Like, you know, you could look at something like the, you know, the IWW. It's like, yeah, it was like fairly democratic, you know, is committed to these kind of ideas. Uh, like, you know, um, some of the syndicalist stuff was more democratic, like even like the SRs in Russia participated in elections. So like, that's, that's not really like they weren't actually a hundred percent opposed to democracy or, uh, like representative democracy in the way that this book would have you believe. Um, uh, but yeah, like absolutely, there are significant strains of, of of anarchist history that are about elite conspiracy to overthrow a, maybe an elected or unelected government, usually unelected, um, and uh, sort of like set up by fiat the ideal government that people will just realize this is what they wanted all along, uh, or to use... Um, uh, you know, propaganda of the deed, as they call it, right? Uh, 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 oftentimes assassination of pro- uh, p- prominent political figures uh, in the name of destabilizing the state and opening the way for anarchist revolution, which, uh, you know, this book puts a huge emphasis on anarchist practice as prefigurative in that it embodies the future that it wants in its very actions in the present. But political assassinations are not that at all. They're absolutely a transitional program because what anarchists want in the future, and, you know, this is the point where they justly say they are misrepresented, is that they don't want a future of wanton violence. They don't want Thunderdome. They don't want uh, uh, absolute chaos and, uh, you know, some kind of horrid Nietzschean uh, uh, world of violence. Uh, they actually want a, you know, a, 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 a free future that where everyone will be able to prosper. And, you know, assassination campaigns don't actually figure into that in any way. Uh, where they're not prefigurative, they're transitional. So it's, it's um, there's a lot of sort of like fundamental definitional things about like, this is what anarchism is, case closed in this book, where it's like, uh, no, like you're kind of hiding a lot of the things that anarchists today would not be on board with. Uh, so, I mean, there's there's a reason they don't talk about them, right? You know. Yeah, yeah. Or even that thing, that thing where, like, um, yeah, the, the syndicalists kind of weirdly replicating the hierarchies of like skilled and unskilled labor inside their organizations, and like, I've had to explain that to syndicalists, and I was a syndicalist. You know what I mean? And like. I feel like a lot of this sketchy shit is kind of just erased or just never mentioned because it's so sketchy. And it's kind of weird to, like... It, it's... I don't know. I, I, I think I tend to encounter anarchists who are, like, familiar with, like, a half dozen Kropotkin quotes, and that's the entirety of it. Um, and the critical engagement with its own history is kind of absent, but 
shrug, you know? Yeah, and I mean, I, I will say, you know, not to justify this stuff, but just to sort of contextualize it, all of this stuff is like all of these political strategies that today are generally considered to be distasteful uh, or beyond the pale um, are stuff that like came out of revolutionary mo uh, moments and movements in the French Revolution. So like it is a part of the revolutionary heritage to have these kind of revolutionary conspiracies or to, you know, do assassinations um, like this stuff was obviously radical and considered to be like outside of of polite activities in the 19th century. But like so was all of socialism. So like it, it's it was um yeah, it's 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 very much like a thing that comes out of its time is no longer in favor uh, and, you know, has largely been pushed out of what is accepted because of debates over it that have happened over time. Um, and, uh, you know, Marxists also have done political terrorism. I certainly will own that. Like the 70s happened, you know, there's lots of student student terrorism that happened, like, uh, you know, for my. My old alma mater at Kyoto University, Japanese Red Army, they were Marxists. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's um, it, it's just uh, just looking at the the historical record clearly and, and and you know with a with a honest perspective as opposed to um, uh, sanitizing it and by way of omission. Yeah, sure. Um, so we did touch on prefiguration, which is the next bit that uh, the author gets onto. Um, uh, pre prefiguration being like kind of like I guess practice what you preach, <laughs> you know. Like um, this is like performance uh, in, in the Pickering sense, right? Like a per uh, performance of the values you want to actually embody, right? So if you want a future society that's a bottom-up democracy, um, then do bottom-up democracy while you try to get there, you know. Um, which is yeah. To be fair, that's a thing that's much more of an anarchist thing these days. Like the the the, the a lot of self-described Marxists are not terribly prefigurative about any of this kind of stuff. It's like very transitional program. The the thousand-year path to socialism, and in the meantime, we will have a kind of grinding nightmare of authority uh, while we get to freedom. That kind of shit. Um, so the the anarchists aren't about that at all. In in this context of the like the sort of uh, Gen X occupy sort of anarchism. Um, and this is, you know, two thumbs up for prefiguration. I think this is the way to go. Um, this will be tied in with the cybernetics as well. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's realistic to go all or nothing on this stuff. But uh, I think that uh, prefiguration in the general political landscape, as opposed to outside of like the micro niche of the left, um, is overrepresented in some ways and underrepresented in others where there's a lot of stuff about like um there's a lot of stuff about sort of like uh willing the future into existence by um political correctness uh or by sort of like white guilt sessions or that kind of thing that i think is probably less useful then or like it's less useful than the amount of stock that is put in it um but on the other hand in terms of like the actual sort of like uh substantive democracy or participatory democracy that is being talked about in this book uh prefiguration is far under 
represented. Um, so, yeah. We could really drink our own Kool-Aid a bit harder on that one, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's, it's uh, you know, I wouldn't say it's completely absent from our politics today, but it's it's absent in ways that, that, that uh, do not really disturb hierarchy very much. Well, the, 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 the centrists and the right are very prefigurative in that they want a future that's a kind of dismal, rain-drenched, Blade Runner fucking nightmare of capital and property, and that's basically what they practice, so. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, maybe need to take a, take a leaf out of their book uh, when it comes to prefiguration. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the centrists are always prefigurative because there's nothing but the present for them. <laughs> Imagine a human face licking a boot forever. You know, that's that's your vision of the future. <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck. Um we got a few points then on like uh, the ultra globalization movement, again the Occupy kind of milieu and it's like horizontal networks and it's kind of emphasis on voluntary participation. Um which which uh, which the author does bring up as like kind of problematic actually, that like um, there's a kind of part-whole tension that, like, if if everything is super voluntary, anyone can just bail out at any time. And this is something I've seen happen when I was more involved in anarchist politics. But, like, people just can, like, you can have these long sessions to come to collective um, agreement on things. And then motherfuckers will just kind of walk away <laughs> and just not do the thing that was collectively agreed upon. Um which will be addressed again in the cybernetics kind of sections, but we're kind of we're laying some of the th- thematic groundwork in, the, in this chapter. Uh, there's notes on federalism, um, the negotiated coexistence between groups as an organizing principle, um, uh, councils and stuff like that. And but it's like it's kind of so we, we get we get Bookchin here, uh, but we don't get you know Panikuk or the Council Communists or anything like that. You know, um, bit of an omission. Uh, yes, yes, uh, definitely. Well, uh, yeah, the Council Communists would be uh, Marxists, so um, they're they're out of the tradition. <laughs> exactly right um but just just to point out that that's not alien to the marxist tradition either we have old tony pancakes and um and a couple of those other guys and i, I think this is then the section where we get the kind of point that like where the, the author does point out that like uh, um, in anarchism this whole infatuation with democracy is actually kind of a recent development um and that historically like the anarchist tradition it has kind of a lot of ambivalence to it and like Especially back in the times when democracy simply always meant the representative kind, like the state, um, whereas the kind of democracy we're talking about these days is more like the kind of real democracy, participatory and from below. Um, so in some ways it's not terribly surprising that there's that kind of historical ambivalence to a term that would have been associated with something that we don't like even now, you know, state democracy. Yeah, you get into stuff like, well... Is democracy really justice? Because it's like the the demos, the the majority legislating on its own behalf. Whereas like communism, we want something that's like inclusive of everybody, and like we want to move past class politics and of any kind. Uh, there's all kinds of like arguments you can have about it. Um, but uh, so we got we got to go back to we got to back to go back to Socrates. Like if. Um if if the if the demos lends you a sword and then goes mad, should you return the sword to them? This is kind of shit. Is that justice? You know. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I mean, you know, there's obviously like min, min, minoritarian concerns that aren't purely um, about uh, uh, protecting the rich um, and all of that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, it, you know, it's. 
probably a bit of splitting hairs that happens on this question quite a bit. Like it's because when we mean like, you know, substantive democracy or direct democracy or protect participatory democracy, it, it, it's usually in the it meant in the sense of like everyone legislating on behalf of themselves being self-governing. Right. And that is in that is in accordance with what what communism is supposed to be, right? It's it's just the the idea of like a majority ruling over a minority that is um, uh, more more problematic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the chapter closes out with a short bit about communication practices, especially among these kind of movements. Um, uh, he, he calls out the London riots in, in particular and how they were organized over uh, Blackberry Messenger um, in this kind of distributed network. It's this kind of Emphasis on like swarm intelligence and this kind of like resilience of distributed networks, um, and highlighting this this concept that'll stay with us through the book of like horizontal many to many communications um, and networks as you know open and participatory and uh, as being in keeping with with uh, like anarchist principles and with the kind of Berean cybernetics. Yeah, and uh, you know, sort of getting into like, I feel like I've been critiquing this book so much, but I, I do have I do have many positive things to say about it. It's just, you know, it leads with this big anarchist title, and so that has to be addressed. Uh, but uh, moving on from that a little bit, I think, um, you know, uh, there is actually like an engagement with and a bit of a critique of social media in here. Uh, so, you know, somebody who comes out of a communication studies background, uh, I appreciated that being in there because, you know, obviously Occupy was definitely used by a lot of, uh, social network, uh, corporations as a positive PR, uh, presenting a radical uh, face to them or, you know, kind of like associating them with democracy. Like, obviously, Twitter comes directly out of Occupy as like a success story because that's where all of this sharing kind of happened as a like way of sharing news or sharing images um, or, or text, uh, even though BlackBerry Messenger was maybe more significant as a like a, 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 a secured form of communication among people who are there participating. It's so funny because like it's um the thing that made Blackberry Messenger effective in that role uh for the, the the guys burning down fucking bookstores in London was that it was so heavily encrypted. Like it was like Department of Defense level of encryption and security because you know Blackberry obviously had to sell that as a feature. It's like, you know, nobody's gonna get into your marketing emails or your fucking insider trading stuff and then that that totally turns out to be really useful to a, a lump and uprising it's really great <laughs> yeah it's like a a really strange coincidence where um this thing that was really targeted at an entirely bourgeois audience or maybe like you know not entirely bourgeois but like maybe like proletarians who work at major corporations and like have white collar jobs uh as well, um, people who would handle sensitive documents, right? That was like sort of the original target audience. It just somehow became like a really common default uh, operating system and uh, hardware platform for 
like average people to <laughs> do telecommunications on. Uh, well, I think that's because um, like uh, if, if you're rolling them out in corporates or things, they need to have like affordable ones that like the company can buy in bulk to give out to their desk drones. And that means those models showed up in phone stores as like, you know, you can get like the worst possible version of Android 0.5 or whatever, or you can get a shitty BlackBerry. And that's much better, you know? Yeah, yeah, actually, like, you're totally right. The, the whole thing about going, like, entirely bourgeois in their orientation was something BlackBerry did later, um, as opposed to sort of, like, this kind of, like, fleet phone idea. This was also before bring your own device was the, the norm. Uh, so that, that mattered a lot, too. Um, uh, super fun how that turns out that like yeah the high level encryption is really useful for these kind of like swarm networks uh, in an uprising yeah and it, and it obviously has been significantly compromised since then uh this is also like why you got things like uh what was that uh prism system that the nsa does like where it's like at the point at the server uh, the point of the server, it, it, it uh, server backdoor. Yeah. Yeah. Collects uh, information because then it's uh, it doesn't actually matter if your connection's encrypted because it can it can grab it right off the server. Um, so, uh, like, you know, there were a lot of like there was a lot of pushback against this phenomenon that happened and, and was largely successful because of just the weight of money and organization. But you do get these moments where like, yeah, the technology actually turns the other way right like this is exactly what uh Fienberg was always talking about right like that you know it's 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 there are different affordances to these technologies and some of them can be turned towards a radical democratic rationality as opposed to you know how do i do my in insider trading good um, <laughs> yeah absolutely um and like where we are now with like organizing being done on like facebook and twitter and shit like that is so much worse because it's just it's just right there on in the open you know um anyway um moving on to chapter three anarchism and cybernetics a missed opportunity revisited um yeah very much a missed opportunity revisited um the uh the, the early part of this chapter is kind of going over stafford beer and the viable system model um and a couple of just uh, Again, go go check out our previous episodes on this because it's you'll get a much better kind of rundown there. But the the key points being, you know, it's a model for how systems, social systems, would regulate themselves in spite of hypercomplexity. Um, that like even though the world is hypercomplex, it's still possible to have regulation and um, you know predictable kind of like performance where a, a thing hangs around for a while and is viable over time. Um, it's how systems reduce and respond to complexity through time. Um, there's an emphasis in the model on autonomous units uh, being coordinated, uh, because in Beer's estimation, this is the the best way to actually manage complexity is to break it down and like handle it closer to the ground, uh, with with autonomous units uh, doing their own thing. Um, uh, what else we got? Uh, yeah, like uh, the author calls out that this for Beer is a diagnostic tool, not a prescription of structure. Um, so Beer isn't telling you how to structure your organization; he's telling you the kind of functions you'll probably need to be viable and how to go about diagnosing whether those functions are there or not. Um, yeah, uh, this is really important because um, the author uh, makes this strong distinction between uh, structural and functional hierarchy, um, where the VSM prescribes functional hierarchy that has no necessary relationship to structural hierarchy. 
So in other words, as you know, we sort of said on our previous episodes about the BSM, uh, like, you know, uh, anybody could participate in, in, in a, a, um, democratic organization like this, uh, in like higher system four or system five functions. Like it's not, um, it's not that you have a control board on top of the organization that makes all the decisions and it, it shuts out the people below, which is what you get in a structural hierarchy. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, um, He's 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 bringing that from beer, right? Where beer makes the distinctions between the functional hierarchy of the systems versus like the anatomical apparent anatomical hierarchy of of organs. Where, um, yeah, those those two things aren't necessarily related at all. Um, the the anatomical structure of a thing can just be an accident, whereas the functional structure is essential. Um, yes, where like, and this is this is where like beer diverges from like Deleuze, right? That. Mm-hmm. It's not really a body without organs, but it isn't a body with anatomy either. It's it's a body it's a body with like functional organs. Mm-hmm. It's a body with functions. Yeah. yeah, a body with functions. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a there's a nice section then on uh, second order cybernetics, which is this kind of like um, I guess like the the early cyberneticists. Um, kind of regarded systems as being kind of objective and it's just they're they're there and they're real in the world which i mean they are to some extent like it's there's material processes happening but the second order cyberneticists took a more subjective kind of approach um where you are involved with the system you are observing and that's 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 especially doubly true for social systems and so the process of regulation of a social system involves this like dialogue and reality construction about the system itself and that that dialogue is a process of self-regulation. So it's, for the, for the first order or like original cyberneticists, you could kind of view the system from outside. Um, but for the second order cybernetics, um, it's, it's, it's imminent. You're, you're inside the system that you're observing. And the very fact that you're observing it is also inside the system. Um, yeah, and I would say if there's any level at which this book has like deep problems cybernetically it's that it doesn't go far enough in this direction Um, Mm, yeah sure kind of views occupy as a historical artifact from the outside uh at least like given the distance of time i don't know what swan's level of participation was in occupy uh but uh it like it's it's kind of like you know looking back on it as this thing that happened previously uh, I will examine it from this model. Uh, it, it, it's it's a little bit uh, more first order than it, it might have been, I think. Yeah, sure. Um, and we kind of have to. I mean, it's 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 probably a lot of the stuff we were talking about earlier, but like, um, see, occupy and its uh, its outcomes and all that kind of stuff as an unfolding process, and that when we are still involved with, and that our our interpretation of occupy is inside the system of what it has become (laughs) yes Uh, yes there's no there's no transcendental position from which to judge this thing it's it's something we're deeply involved in yeah which is you know what this whole book is about but i i just think it could have been a it could have gone a bit further and there'll be some points where we can point that out yeah sure absolutely uh we're kind of getting back to the resonance between all the stuff and anarchism um and autonomy and self-governance with um, something I was aware of, but I hadn't seen quite as much about it uh, until reading in, in these pages, but that Gray Walter, the cyberneticist who did the um, the Robot Turtles 
uh, robot tortoises, um, did a lot of the early work on cybernetics, actually published in an, a journal called Anarchy. Um, and apparently Gray Walter's son was a like self-professed anarchist as well. Um, so there's, there's like a hell of a resonance there. What happens here is that uh, uh, Gray Walter publishes an article in, and he's, he's doing this whole thing of welding uh, cybernetics to, to anarchist theory and stuff um, in a kind of loose way. And then in response, this other guy, John D. McEwen, uh, publishes another article responding to Walter in which we get the really explicit crossover of anarchism and cybernetics. And he's, he's comparing like Kropotkin quotes to, to cybernetics quotes and stuff like that. Um, and it's, uh, but apparently we've never heard from this John D. McEwen guy afterwards. He just kind of disappeared into the mist. Um, yeah. Which I, I really want to, I want to track down these articles now. Yeah, no, it looks really cool. Mm-hmm. It super does. And there's a, I don't know, I picked out a, a wonderful quote here. It's not actually from John D. McEwen. It's from this other guy, Ward, who was kind of involved in this stuff as well, um, where he says, uh, Harmony results not from unity, but from complexity. Anarchy is a function not of society's simplicity and lack of social organization, but of its complexity and multiplicity of social organizations. Um, which I thought was really wonderful, because we're, we're kind of really welding together this kind of thing that, like, the complexity of society isn't a problem. It's actually, like, this... It isn't a problem for um, socialist organizing. It actually is the, the, the fertile ground of socialist organizing that, like... Uh, and and for the application of cybernetics, right? That, like... This kind of radical, autonomous, self-organizing self principle is, it's both the question and the answer for the complexity. Um, they're, they're mutually constitutive. And that, like, we shouldn't be terribly afraid of highly complex society. Um, and because, you know, if, if it's permitted to do so, a highly complex society can be self-organizing and can be perfectly harmonious. And there's, there's no big problem there, which is a really wonderful pushback against the usual kind of conservatizing kind of stuff where, like, oh, you know, isn't it terrible that things are so complex? We really need to, you know, shoot the cat in Beer's terminology by radically simplifying things. These guys, like Walter, McEwen, um, and all the people they're quoting, Kropotkin through to, like, Norbert Wiener and Beer, they all fucking reject that shit. Um, like, highly organized, complex societies are perfectly feasible. Yeah, well, and it's really, like, one of the major things that points towards the hope of, of communism, right, is that that like this complexity is actually a strength and it provides robustness and uh, um, you know a kind of a kind of harmony that he's he's describing. I, I I don't think Beer was ever like super on board with the idea of harmony, but because um, like he he talks a lot about how like internal antagonism is is actually good to. Uh, 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 um, the, the functioning of a, of a system and brain of a firm. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it is something we can point to and be like, this happens out there in society. It happens out there in nature. And it does actually lead, lead uh, sorry, provide some uh, scientific and uh, philosophical justification for our position that people can live beyond these uh, highly simplifying um, institutions. Yeah, it, it's, it, it also kind of throws relief again on how conservatism and, like, capitalism and all that kind of stuff is a kind of weird death cult that, like, strongly desires a static and inert humanity that will just kind of play play ball by its rules. Um, and that's not the thing we should be throwing our weight behind at all. Um, uh, the shadow side of that, then, in the, on the left is, like, Stalinism, right, or whatever. The kind of, like, hyper-authoritarian, shoot-the-cat variant that we have on the left. 
Um, and I don't know, it's just, it's always wonderful to read these passages that are just like a full-throated rejection of all that shit. <laughs> it's like, just chuck, chuck it, chuck it all out. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really nice. And, uh, you know, like, as we, I think, at least alluded to before, we're not like, we're certainly not rejecting everything anarchists say just because the potted history is bad. We actually have a lot of agreement with anarchists about a lot of things. <laughs> it's just what... Definitely, right? And d d despite all our bitching, this is a really great book. And like, you know, there's really strong resonance with our own personal philosophies. Yeah, absolutely. And like, the, the, the thing is, it's just when you frame the book up front in this partisan manner, then it becomes a partisan discussion. But hopefully we can move past that here. <laughs> I think so. I, I think like, I mean... Reading this really kind of rekindled some of my interest in, in anarchism. Because I, I think I had that kind of early experience of being pretty deeply involved in it and then kind of disillusioned by some of the, some of the stuff that the author points out, the like kind of weird phobia of organizing that anarchists actually kind of have in practice. Um, uh, just they're being petrified of actual strategy and in some ways afraid of winning. Like there's, there's a kind of real beautiful losers problem in the kind of anarchist milieu. But, you know, it, 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 like... I think my, my sort of personal um, disposition is very, still very much close to that kind of anarcho-communist milieu that I was in. And I kind of start, I start to wonder, like, would it be more productive and more easy to teach anarchists how to organize properly versus teaching Leninists how to give a shit about democracy and self-organization? Like, the former is probably more productive and easier. And so... Yeah, you know, that's that's the problem with being a. I guess like, so. We are Marxist in Marxist in the original sense of like, we agree with Marx, but with almost nobody who comes after him. <laughs> you know, um, and there's this huge problem of finding yourself amongst these assholes. You know. Yeah, like a small number of subsequent Marxists we would agree with, and I think you know we also acknowledge that like Marx is not completely consistent with himself and there are things Mark says that we disagree with and all of that stuff. But, uh, you know, it's, it's just, uh, I, I, I still, uh, have a certain amount of identification with Marxism just because I think Marx had a lot of good ideas and like a lot of the critiques he made of, of, uh, of his contemporary socialists, uh, including, the ones who would really go on to take on the, the mantle of Marxism uh, were valid. So it's it's like I think, um, yeah, it's it's not a uh, I don't look at him as a kind of uh, big daddy figure that like I must protect daddy uh, like, you know, that kind of thing. It's it's really not that it's. It's more like, can we clear up what these people actually said so we can have a better discussion because we're in really bad shape right now? Yeah, that's that's I think that's I'm, I'm on the same page there. Right. But like there's a there's a problem that like when you call yourself when, when we self label as Marxists, we kind of often find ourselves amongst keep, you know, shoulder to shoulder with these just reprehensible fucking scumbags, you know, <laughs> and it's like, oh, God, you know, am I it's like you can I don't know. 
pick a band that has the worst fans, you know? And it's like, <laughs> if I go to their concert, I'm just going to be surrounded by fucking assholes, you know? Um, it's going to be a real problem. Dave Matthews bad. <laughs> yeah. So like, even if you're really into Dave Matthews, it's like, it's not a good idea to go there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But hey, so which is to say, I'm, I'm actually super sympathetic to the, the sort of core principles of, um, of the, of the, of that kind of anarchism. But, um, yeah, maybe, maybe it's more productive to teach those folks how to be effective at organizing, which is what this book is trying to do, rather than, like, trying to trick the fucking Leninists into not being weird authoritarian fucking weirdos. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it feels pitched at anarchists and people who are just getting into left politics and think they might want to be anarchists. And to a lesser extent, people like us, because we've read all the same stuff. Because, yeah, because of the cybernetics angle. <laughs> it's weird. Um uh, functional hierarchy versus structural hierarchy. Um, I think we've kind of covered this, um, or have we? Okay, maybe one of the important points here is the meta languages that, like, we're talking about levels of levels of information and levels of like language descriptions, like meta languages and meta systems. We're not talking about like an anatomical hierarchy of one guy stands on another guy's head and then another guy stands on his head. Yes, and um, this is something that. Um, Swan identifies, I think, with, um, uh, who was it now? Uh, Pask. Um, uh, but actually this exact idea is also in Brain of the Firm in, uh, I think it's like chapter four or something like that. There's a whole chapter on, uh, there's a whole chapter on meta languages and how they correspond to organization. Um, yeah. And I mean, yeah. beer even like, um. I, because Beer's writing is so fucking dispersed throughout that book, it can be hard to pin down exactly where he says it, but, like, he'll do things like point out that the the control systems in the body that control respiration, they're not like... It's not like a hierarchy that controls the lungs, because the lungs are not the respiratory system. Like, it's... The, the respiratory system is the thing that's under control, right? That's the information system. That's in the, like, hierarchy of information systems. But the organs are kind of, like, all siblings of each other. Um, and, yeah, he, he, he always goes to great pains to, like, trouble our, like, anatomical understanding of structures and to instead point to a functional understanding. Yeah, turning each of these things into, or each of these functions into a thing as opposed to a process. He's always trying to undermine that. Uh, because you look at something like a VSM diagram and you go, oh, okay, it's like a, it's like a hierarchy. It's a, it's an org chart. It's like, no, it's not an org chart. That's not what it is. I think it's something just occurred to me here. Um, I think in this book, I don't know if the author really talks very much about the recursive structure of like the VSM. Not a whole lot. He does... And that, that felt like a miss, that something was missing. Yeah, yeah, he does bring it up, but uh, only in passing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I guess. It's it's sort of implied in a lot of the talk about Federation and stuff like that, but I don't think it's ever really spelled out. There's like in the last chapter, he throws in the word recursive to describe this stuff, um, but uh, it's 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 not uh, delved into in depth, unfortunately. Um, but that's, an, that's another way in which Beer points out that like, okay, this is a, it's a recursive structure of, um, of information systems. It's not a, you know, structural hierarchy. Um, that's just an, another one of those things that Beer is constantly going on about that, like the recursive structure of it is not to be mistaken for a, like anatomical hierarchy. Yeah. Um, we then get some, like a section of examples from Occupy where, 
Um, like system one is identified with the working groups um, in the camps, and then system two is the communication among the groups. Then systems three, four, and five were all handled by the general assembly. And so again, notice that the, the, the functional hierarchy doesn't match an like a structural hierarchy. Like you have one structural body that actually handles three different functions. Um, then later on, towards the end, the, there's this kind of there's like a refinement that happens in in Occupy where uh, that general assembly kind of splits into spokes council as systems three and four, and then the general assembly only doing the system five stuff, which is perfectly consistent with Iberian like analysis and like a prediction of what would happen. That like over time there would be a specialization and like a um, evol evolution of the structure in order to do variety engineering. That's like, I think we maybe skipped that, but like it's in here, like Ashby's law of requisite variety is here. Um, and yeah, it, it fits, you know, that's the, what's described on the page fits the, um, the model pretty, pretty closely. It, when it says system one units are based on working groups, I think that's kind of a gloss on what um, SWAN means here, uh, because it's, it's, it's more like, yeah, like working groups, but also just sort of any kind of group that got together to do something. Like it wasn't, it wasn't really that formalized. But like, if you're just milling about in the general assembly, obviously you're doing something different than like if it's like, oh, we're gonna run down to this store to get some stuff for, you know, I don't know the tents. Um, like that's system one, but like it's not, it doesn't have a formal label. So like when they say working groups there, it's very like catch all, like we're out there doing stuff, you know, that's, that's. Uh, it, it could be both individuals and very small grouplets and more formal working groups. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the other thing, uh, is that, um, the spokes councils are interesting because uh, now there's it, it, they're not uh, I believe they're not elected councils. I believe they're just you can turn up and participate in them if you want to. So that's again, it's not the structural hierarchy. It's uh, it's a it's a um, uh, basically, if you want to participate in those uh, system three or four functions, you can go to that council and participate there. Um, so it's not closed, um, I think was the idea. Now, you know, if we actually look at what Occupy was, anthropologically speaking, you know, we did some ethnography, we could see that like, yeah, the people who go in the spokes councils are probably the people who are the most privileged because they have the most time and energy to put towards these things. They don't have to book off time from work. They can be participating during the day instead of just at night. They don't have to worry about the transportation costs so much, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, which is very much what was the case with the Soviets in in uh in the ussr as well like you know like formally it's you know all the workers and, and and soldiers that got together and did it but like really it was mostly run by the 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 spokes council equivalent which was actually like exclusive and elected um so you know very much gesturing towards those uh ideas of um equal access uh, to these different functions um, was like certainly a goal of Occupy and it, it does fit into the model. Uh, but of course they were interfacing with a 
social reality that is deeply, deeply hierarchical and uh, and and constantly struggling to offset those uh, existing social structures. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, it's it's a hell of a thing, right? Because um, I don't know. Maybe this came up in the brain of the firm reading group, but like, it's the kind of thing I've been pondering for a while, right? That like, um. When we think of, like, systems, and, like, I think this is the thing you get with Beer and Ashby, right, where they kind of think of um, the way the system's operating in, like, a probability space. It's like a landscape of, of possible actions and stuff like that, and there's there's certain grooves in the landscape that are, like, easy paths and stuff like that, and, like, previous actions wear grooves in the ground. This is a huge problem for organizing anything that goes against the grain, because the grain is pretty fucking strong, you know? Um, and... We're, we're, we're operating in an environment that already has extremely deep grooves cut into it. And, you know, if you drop a ball anywhere on that landscape, chances are it will end up falling into one of those grooves. And so even when you're trying to organize a non-hierarchical, radically participatory uh, movement, you drop a ball on the landscape, it's probably going to fall close to or into one of the existing grooves, which is hierarchies and... You know, like, even the, the, this thing of, like, yeah, if you have the time and capacity to participate in it, you're probably pretty well off, you know? Those are just those are just grooves in the landscape that the new system has to grapple with and oftentimes struggle against. It's, it's in a very literal sense, it's an uphill climb to not let the ball roll into that groove. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and, you know, of course, the, the, the critique of, like, the tyranny of structuralistness that is made against Occupy really digs into these questions a lot. Uh, maybe make some counter proposals that weren't very useful uh, in terms of like, well, we all need to become Latinists, but uh, that, or, you know, we need to become social Democrats. Uh, very but strong I, conclusion. <laughs> yeah. But it, yeah. it's more like, you know, Everybody can be formally equal in their ability to participate in these functions, but if you're well off, you you know, if you have a, an education, if you have free time, if you have your parents' trust fund money to get you through, uh, to, to, to just support you to live uh, in a camp for the whole summer, uh, not working uh, in a, a capitalist uh, firm, um, you're probably going to have more say than other people. And like, if you, um, ignore that reality, like willfully ignore that reality, that could be a real problem. Um, so it's, it, it's, it's really tough. Like, you know, for instance, you can imagine sort of like in a co-op or something where everyone's getting paid the same and, you know, there is a really intensive focus on self-education and uh, all of these kinds of things. Like there's a number of like ways in this could be this could be uh, worked with. Um, but it's harder to imagine, like there were things like, for instance, like, oh, we give away free food on, on, uh, at Occupy. Uh, so like, if you can't afford to live out here and eat, um, or if you just can't afford to eat, then we will feed you. 
or you could camp out here or, you know, it's like to deal with transportation costs. And we use like a progressive stack to try to get around those issues of privilege. So like definitely there were strategies taken to deal with these things. Uh, but um, I guess it's like you need to look at, OK, this organizational form has a functional organization, not a structural one. But don't assume that that it's not situated in a structural hierarchy. Yeah. Right? yeah because that well. actually is still there. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. It's the landscape that you're operating on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm glad to see a lot of these lessons be picked up, right? That like, um, I've heard of um, like people doing uh, tenant organizing and they they had to have childcare at meetings, you know, that that's the thing that they sort out because it turns out that your average proletarian is a single mother, you know, on average. Um, turns out that's super important or even the, the progressive stack stuff. Um, yeah, a lot of that sort of stuff is, is it has been taken on board. Um, so yeah, good lessons learned. Well, that's it for this episode. Join us again next time when we'll pick up part two of our discussion of anarchist cybernetics. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. We're on Facebook, we're on all of the podcast apps, so like, rate, and subscribe. If you go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit, you can give us a couple of bucks a month to help keep the lights on and to get access to our community discord. This show is part of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast network and research collective. Go to emancipation.network and check out our sister shows, such as Swampside Chats, Varn Blog, From Alpha to Omega, Jumpsuit Utopia, and Mortal Science. They're all great shows and great folks. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this show. 